Well, for most of you, uh, Sammy needs no uh, introduction, but I know we've got a number of new people uh, in our church, and I want to make sure you all uh, understand and appreciate uh, who this man is that you're about to hear preach uh, God's Word. Uh, I got to know Sammy, I met Sammy when he was, uh, I believe, in high school, uh, way back when. He's an old man now. Uh, but uh, I knew his dad uh, on one of the first trips I ever made to India and uh, really grew to love uh, Chris Williams, his dad, and uh, his, his mom, Lena, and uh, just uh, he and his brother, uh, Stephen, and just seeing how the Lord was using the Williams family in India. And after that, Sammy ended up going to the Master's College, Master's Seminary, and felt God calling him back to serve alongside his dad there in India and uh, part of a, a school called the Pastoral Training Seminary. And uh, it's designed to train Indian men to be, uh, first and foremost, uh, expositors of the Word of God and uh, also church planners. And so we've been investing in that ministry financially and prayerfully for, like I said, probably 12, 13, 14 years now and uh, have been just so excited to be a part of what the Lord is doing through uh, Sammy and the other men that work with him there on on the faculty uh, at the Pastoral Training Seminary and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed by Sammy's ministry, uh, his life, uh, his giftedness. Um, unfortunately, too often you think, well, you know, that guy's a missionary because he could have never been a pastor uh, or he's not a good preacher, so he's a missionary. Um, well, that's not true of Sammy uh, because Sammy does pastor a church in India uh, and he's, his desire is that that would be a model church for the guys that are coming through the seminary to go to his church and see uh, what a biblical church looks like. And then Sammy also preaches every Sunday, and uh, he's a very gifted expositor, as you're about to, to, to hear, and uh, I can't think of a, a better guy to be training other men, other Indian men, to how to preach God's Word than, than Sammy. And so, Sammy, we're blessed that you're here with us, and then Nicole, it's great to have you here, and it's great to see the kids, and uh, looking forward to catching up with you guys over the next few days. But Sammy, come and minister to us through the Word. Thanks, Ken. Well, thank you, Ken. It's really moving to think about how long, almost embarrassing to think about how long we've known each other. And I consider you in many ways, when we first met a mentor as I was on staff, uh, Ken, Kelly, at Student Ministries in Grace, and I would have never dreamed of, of being here and even doing the ministry that God has given, but it's all His grace. And uh, that's, that's the truth, you know, as you think about uh, serving Him in my own country and uh, taking care of training the next generation of expositors for the sake of Jesus Christ. So thank you for your prayers and your partnership. We would have, in many real and human ways, never been able to do it without the support of churches like Lakeside being behind us, both personally in your visits to come and minister in India, and also just through your fervent prayers, praying that God would move the heavens even as we do his work and seek to extend his kingdom in in the nation of india it's my home and i have to pinch myself sometimes to think about that i get to go back to my own home and and seek to honor the lord jesus christ a huge country one billion plus people uh, this the largest democracy in the world only china beats us in terms of people and the the reality of the need there is immense because you think about 
one of the oldest and darkest uh, religions, uh, false systems, Hinduism, uh, dominates the country. And just to give you an idea of how devastating Hinduism is in terms of its satanic idolatry, they have 330 million gods that they worship in their pantheon. And uh, I remind people here in the U.S., that's as many people as there are in the United States. That's how many false gods they have. So it's Romans 1 just come to life. And how do you reach a country like that? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But it can only happen through God's power, through the cross which we just celebrated. And we are doing exactly that. Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's the only weapon that can survive against the gates of hell, even in a country like India. And that's why we have a seminary. You know, not just to create an academic institution, but building the church through the foot soldiers that God has called by His grace and mercy to be men of God, to be men that stand for Christ. And in the last 13 years, I find it hard to believe we've been doing this for 13 years. I feel like I'm barely 14. But in the last 13 years, we've seen 90 men go out into India, into Burma, the surrounding countries, even one in Thailand, uh, and, and really see God use us beyond what we could ask or imagine to do exactly what He promised to build His church. And one of the key things for me is that I wouldn't just train pastors, and it's exciting to train pastors, but I would also be a pastor myself. I don't want to train pastors without the backing and even the support of a local church. And so we've, we've seen a church planted in Goa, and it's five years old now, and we have 80 people there. And it's so exciting to, to see the way in which, again, God grows that church just through the preaching of His Word. I've preached through Titus, I've preached through James, I've preached through Romans. Well, I've been preaching through Romans for the last, uh, I don't know, two years, and my congregation has been very patient with me. But God uses all of that to establish His body. And I can even be here today. And by the way, they, they had their church service last night while we were sleeping. And I received five or six emails saying, Sammy, we're glad you're gone because the church is still doing well. And it, we, we need to see that the church is established not on men, but it's established on this. It's established through Christ. It's established through His Spirit. And it was just so encouraging for me to even be here in Texas and know that that church is doing fine. Because honestly, it doesn't need me. Christ is enough. And so that's the vehicle. The church, as you know here at Lakeside, is the vehicle through which Christ is accomplishing great feats for His name in dark places like India and then even here in Texas. And it is just our privilege to be His slaves, to be His servants in this enterprise until Jesus comes back again to, to claim a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and say, welcome to that eternal rest of worship with me forever and ever. And so that's what missions is all about, right? It always culminates in worship. It always culminates in the coming of Christ, and that's what we work towards. So we appreciate your prayers in this great enterprise, and we look forward to, to seeing God do many, many great things in the work that he has called us to do there in India. I wanted to take you, by way of encouragement, even through God's word this morning, uh, to the book of Nehemiah. 
And I want to turn there because it very much fits in with this strategy that we see even as New Testament Christians standing for Jesus Christ in a world that seems to be moving further and further away from him and saying, I want to live not for this world, not for the things of this world, but I want to live for eternity. Well, Nehemiah, in his generation, lived in exactly the same way and faced exactly some of the same challenges and problems that we faced, and yet God was able to use him, not because he was great, but because God was great in his life and in his ministry to accomplish an amazing feat, as we know, if you've read the book of Nehemiah, to build a wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. Now, it's, it's amazing just to think about that fact, that God was able to use this one man to build a wall around Jerusalem in just 52 days. But think about the background. This was after the exile. The Israelites had faced the judgments of God, and they had been in Babylon and then in Assyria for, for over 70 years, and then God sent them back through His promise in 538 B.C. through the ministry of a man named Zerubbabel. And as they got back, they found that the nation of Israel was filled with the enemies of God, the Samaritans and many other races that had begun to settle into the promised land and take it over and use it for purposes that God hadn't intended. And from 538 onwards, as they sought to establish their nation again and obey the Lord, obey Yahweh who had given them His promises, they found that it was intimidating and difficult because the enemies were more numerous than them. And almost 80 years passed, and then Ezra came. God called another man. And he came in 558, 458 B.C. And he, by the grace of God, through the word of God, was able to establish the rebuilding of the temple. But still the people didn't have the boldness and didn't have the courage to see the nation established because they had no walls. And in those days, if you had a city without walls, you had a city without assurance. You had a city without security. You had a city without peace. And the enemies, just like today in Israel, were abundant and numerous. And so you get to 444 BC where Nehemiah, who might be a man very much like you, living not necessarily as a minister of God, but the cupbearer to the king. He had a great job, one of the highest paying maybe vocations in that society. Maybe he had a lot of worldly possessions, and yet he was a man that was loyal to God because his parents had named him Nehemiah, which means God is my comfort. They named him with a full understanding of even the covenant promises of God. He heard that Almost a hundred years after God had sent the people of Israel back to their home, they were still living, living like slum dwellers, with no homes, with no security. And Nehemiah's heart was broken. And for something that had taken a hundred and six years, from 538 to 444, that was Nehemiah's day, of people saying, it is impossible to ever build a nation for the Lord ever again. 
It is impossible to turn back the tide of evil that has swept through the covenant people. It is impossible. 106 years of hearing this, God was able to use this man and turn around what was said to be impossible by men. God made it possible in 52 days. That's what's amazing about the book of Nehemiah. You know, and the biggest mistake we make when we study this book is we think that it was all possible because Nehemiah was a great administrator, because Nehemiah was a great man, because Nehemiah was a great leader. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. It had nothing to do with Nehemiah. What happened in 52 days, the reversal for 106 years, had nothing to do with Nehemiah. Even Nehemiah himself would stand up and say, I am a worm. I am nothing. If you read Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, he even says this. I think this is the theme even that drives him through this whole book. He says in Nehemiah 1, 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Or you could even translate that as slave. I am nothing in your sight, Lord. And I live only to be dominated by your lordship. He goes on to say, be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Here's a man that was captivated not by his name, not by his interests, but by the interests, if you will, even of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what made him strong. That's what enabled him to turn aside the tide of 106 years of evil among the covenant people of God. And this is so relevant for us today, isn't it? Even as you think about the United States of America, even as you think about Texas, we live in a day and age where a lot has changed, and it's changed for evil rather than for good. And it makes us think sometimes, even as we, we come to churches like this, which are oases of, of Christ and of His Word and of His Gospel, that this is not going to last for very long. And this is going to be quenched and suppressed by, by what we see happening in society and the world in terms of the morality, in terms of the politics, in terms of the trends of this world. Can we continue to live for Christ in Texas or in India? It, it seems like all over, evil is reigning. And what caused Nehemiah to be so strong in his generation? It wasn't him. That's encouraging. I think that's why we fail, because sometimes we try to succeed by our own strength, by our own gifts, by our own energies, and God will drive us to our faces if we do that. But when we realize that we, like Nehemiah, we are servants, we are slaves, we are nothing, we have nothing good that, that dwells in us truly, but only Christ and His power can make us useful, then no matter how strong the, the forces of Satan are in this world, we can see them turned around for the sake of Jesus Christ because he loves to use people that see themselves as nothing, like John the Baptist, I must decrease, and see Christ as everything. He loves to use people like that, so he glorifies his name, right? God has not chosen many strong, God has not chosen many mighty, but he has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And he does that so that even as Paul says in Romans 12, 21, we would not be overcome by evil, by maybe responding in retreat, 
by maybe responding in even reaction with anger and frustration. And both of those responses, they draw attention to ourselves rather than to the glory of Christ. But that we would respond, Romans 12, 21, by overcoming evil with what? With good. Even the good of the cross that we just celebrated a few minutes ago. Now, all that to say, I think Nehemiah chapter 4 really shows us some of the, the roots of the strength of Nehemiah that we, that you and me can even have as we seek to make Christ's name great in this world. Not our name, but Christ's name great in this world. So let me do this. I know it's, it's a long chapter, but it's a really interesting story as we see where the enemies of Satan are standing against the servant of God and we see the way in which victory comes through the power of Christ and not the power of Nehemiah. Let me read the whole of Nehemiah chapter 4. And why don't you follow along with me as we look at these amazing 23 verses of God overcoming evil with good. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious, literally hopping mad and, and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? Even the burned ones? And these are a hundred-year-old burned stones. And they're looking at them and, and mocking Nehemiah and his team. Verse 3, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. I love the response of Nehemiah. He doesn't talk to these men. He talks to his God. Hear, O our God, verse 4, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sins be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. And as you know, in your own lives, the first wave of opposition is not the last wave of opposition. That was just the beginning. And so there was a small victory, but then you have some more enmity being expressed in verse 7 and following. Verse 7. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. He adds more intensity to their heat. All of them, verse 8, conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. I love how Nehemiah always goes to his knees. That's his first response. I think that shows where his strength is. Verse 9, but we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And then the Jews in the neighborhood who lived near them 
they came and told us 10 times. That's an expression of intensity. Every place where you may turn, they will come up against us. Verse 13, Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, the fear of man, I rose. Now, Nehemiah is not a preacher, but this is amazing. I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, saying this, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. That's the second wave of persecution. Now you have the third incident, which is very interesting. Verse 15, When our enemies heard that it was known to us, And that's the end of the enemies. You don't hear about them after this verse. And that God had frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. You know, we're going to talk about this, but the third wave of persecution is almost the most dangerous where persecution stops. And that's where you can often see the people of God, if they don't trust in God, resorting to the wrong sense of comfort. And finding great failure instead of great victory. But look at what Nehemiah does. From that day on, verse 16, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, Let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. And it wasn't just the people. It was even Nehemiah. He set this example of fervency for Christ even during this time of peace. Verse 23. This is an amazing verse. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. It got a little stinky in there. Even when we went to the water, each took his weapons. And you can see through this whole episode, there's there's this wave of opposition from the enemies of God, from, from the prince of this world who controls the system of this world. And yet, no matter what he does, Nehemiah keeps turning back in prayer to his God in three amazing responses that I want to reflect on this morning. If you will, three righteous gospel responses that can help us to overcome opposition even in our lives. You want to have a life that is easy? Don't live for Christ. Don't tell anybody that you love Christ. But you want to have a life that is filled with conflict and opposition? In this world, then you got to identify in all that you are and all that you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Nehemiah saw 
is what God's people see from generation to generation. And it becomes an opportunity for us to realize that we don't belong in this world, right? We're citizens of another country whose king is Jesus. And our hope is not in the politicians and in the systems and in the people of this world, but our hope is in Christ. And the way in which we respond to even the natural enmity, all those who seek to live godly in this world, Paul reminds Timothy, will face what? Persecution. And the way to respond in confidence and in an understanding of the strength of God, I think, is exemplified by Nehemiah. So just quickly, three gospel responses, three righteous gospel responses to evil opposition that you may be facing in in whatever you're seeking to build for Jesus Christ. Maybe it's even discipling your children. Maybe it's it's standing for Jesus in your workplace. Maybe it's, it's even being a witness for God in your family. You will face conflict because you have sought to value heaven more than earth. How can you win the battle where you can't, but Christ can through you? And so the first response I think we find in verses 1 through 6, and this may be something that you've experienced and you face even as you see the the enemies of Nehemiah coming against him and making statements that are just demeaning and discouraging. You know, persecution doesn't always start with sticks and stones. Persecution oftentimes begins with words. And, and I think you've often heard this statement, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will, you know, they won't touch me. That's a lie from the pit of hell too. Sometimes, and if you're married, you know this, words are more devastating than sticks and stones. And they can hurt, and they can affect, and especially when you're seeking to stand for Christ, the mockery, the ridicule. And you can see this in verses 1 through 3, as Sanballat, the Samaritan man that is jealous in an evil way to claim the covenant land of Israel. He becomes angry, he becomes furious, and he turns his attack against them in these man-centered distortions of verse 2 even. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore this city and this wall for themselves? Now, you may not see that immediately in the English translation, but that phrase, for themselves, even is, is the idea that there is nobody with them. They're all by themselves. And if you understand even who Nehemiah was claiming to be, he was claiming to be a man that stood for God. Sanballat was even saying, even God is not with you. And all you are is you are just a weak man with other weak men and women. How can you do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what Satan does is he, is he often takes the truth, but he'll distort it. We, we are weak. And it, it, is, it is good to know your weakness because your weakness will cause you to rely on Christ. But Satan will take that truth and he will make it into a distortion where our weakness might even become a place for discouragement. They go on to say, not only are you weak in your strength, but you're also weak in your resources. Look at the stones that you're using. Look at the resources that you have. You don't have the money. You don't have the people. You don't have the the, the personnel to be able to do a work for Jesus Christ. Tobiah the Ammonite in verse 3 said, even if a fox, now a fox was like a small cat, 
It was one of the most feeble animals that Tobiah could think of. And he says, even if this, this little stray cat were to jump on your, your wall that you're building for the Lord, it will fall down. Why are you even trying? The stones you're using were burned a hundred years ago. Why are you even trying? You know, I, I quoted earlier 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And we've got to read the end of that passage so that him who boasts will boast in the Lord. And the response of Nehemiah is this. He doesn't talk to the enemy because the moment you start talking to people at your workplace or in your neighborhood that are mocking you because of your life for Jesus Christ, you're going to respond with sin, aren't you? If you talk to evil men, you're not going to respond in a Christ-like way. And the best way to have that gentle answer that turns away wrath, that gospel answer that turns away the enmity that the world gives against you, is you don't talk to men, you talk to your Lord. And, and this response, I would summarize just in this way, Nehemiah pleads with God. That's, that's the idea in verse 4. Hear, O God. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of even great intensity. He pleads with God for this. He pleads with God for his convicting power to fall upon evil men. That's the first gospel response. He pleads with God for convicting power. Now, I know as you read these verses, and you see what Nehemiah is saying, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity, you're probably saying, I wish I can pray that, but I don't think I probably should. You know, I mean, Jesus told me in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 that we need to love our enemies, right? And so this, this is Old Testament. I, I wish I could go Old Testament on some of my enemies, but I, I know I can't. But, but sometimes, you know, our view of these passages, the imprecatory prayers, even if you will, I think is a little distorted. I think it's a little deficient. And, and this is the deficiency, quickly, I, I, just, just briefly. We, we think almost that God has a different standard for holiness and righteousness in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. And you realize what that does? It almost makes God change. And he never changes in his standards. He never changes in his morality. He never changes in his will for his people. And so that's a real confusing approach to this kind of section of scripture. You're saying, praise the Lord, Samuel. I always wanted to pray these kinds of prayers. Now, hang on a second. Even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, God always forbids personal vengeance and revenge. That's not changed. It is always sin to get mad and to pick up weapons of warfare, even though I know you have them, and to try and fight with the enemies that stand against the church of Jesus Christ. It was always sinful. Let me, let me just read a few verses from the Old Testament. I mean, we know the New Testament, but even from the Old, Old Testament, Proverbs 20 and verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil myself personally. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. You know what, brothers and sisters? In fact, prayer is the way in which in situations of injustice, in which in situations of evil, even as we seek to serve Christ, prayer is the way in which we don't take anger into our own hands, but we put it 
on God because he's a God of justice. And, and what is Nehemiah doing? Just very quickly. You know, he, he's a man that every time he prays, you study this, he is pregnant and loaded with the theology of the Old Testament. And some of this language that he uses here, return their reproach on their own heads. You've read this in Romans, right? As Paul is quoting Proverbs again, he says, if your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. If your enemy is hungry, give him a piece of bread. And in doing so, you will what? You will heap burning coals upon his head. That was written many years before Nehemiah. I think Nehemiah probably even had the Bible in front of him. And he was saying, Lord, I know I can't do anything, but I know you're the one that can do this. And what is the idea that Nehemiah is praying for? He's saying, Lord, give them conviction of their sin. Help them to know that they are standing not before me, but before a holy judge of the universe. And that in their actions, they are displeasing not men, but they're displeasing you. Lord, bring them to this point of waking up to the horror of their actions. That's what he's praying. You know, before you can experience the gospel grace of Jesus Christ, you have to experience the rottenness and the horror of your sin. And if you will, that's what Nehemiah is praying for. He's even praying the language of David in Psalm you know, 32, where he talks about the covering and the forgiveness of God. And he says this in verses, in his, in his prayer, as he continues to pray in verse 5, do not forgive their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you. That's exactly the same language that David uses. But he uses it in the way of the gospel. And Nehemiah is saying, is I pray that they would be driven to a sense of their lostness and their insufficiency so that they would know that the only means through which they can stand is the cross of Jesus Christ, if you will. That's what he's praying for. I don't know if you've ever prayed like that in situations of evil. Lord, I pray that you would help these people to know that there is no redemption apart from Jesus Christ. In a sense, that's what Nehemiah is praying. And as he does that, it's amazing. You know what Paul promised in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7. What did Paul say? When you face situations of, of stress and anxiety, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication. Make your requests known to God. And then what does he say? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall... And the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind, they had a peace, they had a unity as they listened to the prayers of Nehemiah, praying for God to be the convicting power over evil men. They had a peace that enabled them to even in the midst of these mocking men to build a wall to half its height. That's about 10 miles and 6 feet wide, at least the initial structure of the wall. And it, it, it seems like this text is saying they had so much peace from God that they did that just in a few days. Brothers, sisters, the best thing that we can do when we're faced with evil men is not respond in anger, but put them in the hands of God. 
And God will fill you with a sense of peace that passes the situation that will cause you to see his gospel grow in ways that you have never even seen before, even in the midst of persecution. You know, I've seen this, I'm sure you've seen this happen in your life so many times, but even just recently in India, we are renting a hall for our church, and it's two stories, and we've rented it from a Hindu gentleman, and he gave it to us for three years, and the lease was going to expire just a few weeks ago. And prior to this, you know, right now India is, is facing a, a lot of growth from, from militant Hinduism, both in the central government and even at the local level. And it, it's, it's causing Hindus to be openly opposed to the work of the church and to Christianity. And a few of our church members, when they pulled up to church, they actually had some of the Hindu neighborhood come out and even threaten them and say, we, we know what you're doing here. You're, you're doing conversions, paying people money so that they can get saved. And we're going to report you to the police. And then I saw our landlord even talking to them and, and conversing with some of these, these people. And I, th I thought, oh no, Lord, we've had a great ministry here for three years, but maybe it's all going to come to an end. And so we just, we just started praying. Lord, bring about a, a sense of, of your conviction, even upon the neighborhood that we are in. And, and right before I came here, I went and met with the landlord. And I sat down with him and I said, you know, I, I'm looking to, to renew the lease. And he said, Sammy, I'm so glad you want to. Because he said, you know, you are good people. And I, I, I know that you are good people because I walk by your service and I hear you singing songs to God and praising Him. And he said, you know, I, I don't have that kind of joy. I don't have that kind of peace. And I don't think he's saved. I don't think he's saved, but I think there's that initial sense even of him knowing and coming under a conviction of his sin that only God through his spirit could produce. And this is what he said to me. This just happened. I, I shared it with my church, and they were in tears because they were all praying, Lord, rescue us from the situation of maybe being thrown out of the hall that we're worshiping him. And he said this. He said, you know, I just want you to have this hall for as long as you want, and I don't even want to make an agreement with you and I, I just want you to know that I'm not going to raise the rent ever because you people have been blessing me. And I think that's in a sense even what God can do when we trust in Him rather than trusting in our own weapons, in our own anger, in our own resources. He can do things that are more powerful than we can do with our resources. Amen? Now, there's a couple more responses that we see here in this passage the opposition doesn't stop after the first wave. And, and there is a need for perseverance by the people of God. And you look at verse 7 and 8, and you see after this initial sense of discouragement, there's a debilitating sense of even personal physical persecution and threat to their lives in verses 7 and 8. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the wall of Jerusalem went on, and the breaches began to be closed, they were even more angry. And they conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Now, if you look at verse 7, it mentions these four groups of people, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they were from the Samaritan kingdom up north of Israel. And then you see the Arabs, and they were, again, just like Israel today, surrounded by pagan nations. They were the nations to the south of Israel. And then you see this other nation, the Ammonites, 
which was an empire that was to the west of Israel, or sorry, to the east of Israel, and then finally the Ashdodites that were to the west of Israel. And if you look at a map, literally what verse 7 is saying is this small ragtag group of construction workers under Nehemiah had four armies from north, south, east, and west coming against them with maybe hundreds of thousands of soldiers wanting to kill them because of the work that they were doing for Jesus Christ. You know, Satan will always try to push us to this end of physical persecution. And a a sense of discouragement fell upon the people. If you look at verses 10, when people are working, especially hard jobs outside in the sun, and I see this a lot in India, they sing songs, you know, to try and encourage their hearts. But you look at verse 10, this is the song that they're singing. The strength of the burden bearers is failing, and there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to build the wall. They had lost heart because they knew that the armies of the surrounding nations was coming to kill them very soon. Verses 11, the enemy was leaking out information about how exactly they were going to destroy them. And they said, we'll come to you when you're sleeping in your beds at night. If that wasn't enough, in verse 12, the neighbors, the Jews that were just kind of watching them and saying, we're happy that you're doing this wall work, but we're not going to help you. But we're going to tell you about all the stuff that could go wrong. They say in verse 12, you, you need to run away. And they told them 10 times. Because they will come against you from every place in which you turn. And now how does Nehemiah respond to this? I think if I was in his shoes, I would have just run away and said, Lord, let me hide in a cave somewhere so that I can wait for the persecution to go away. But look at Nehemiah and what he does. He, he responds through protecting the people, not through an indication of how strong he was, but through an indication even of how strong God was. He protects God's people through God's strength. You know, I don't know if you know this, but today, in this day and age, and if you you look at websites like Voice of the Martyrs, there is more persecution against the people of Christ than in any other generation in the history of the church. At this point in our our Sunday service even, even while I'm preaching this service, probably a few hundred people are being martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the Middle East, in North Korea. About a hundred million Christians right now are under persecution because they stand for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's sometimes foreign for us, isn't it? But it may be something very close even to the shores of this country, maybe not very long before we have to face issues even like this. And it's important for us to be prepared as to how we would respond. Would we respond in our own strength, forming a militia or or something like that? Or would we respond in a more God-glorifying way as Nehemiah did? He protected the people through God's strength. And what did he do? Well, I think three things. First of all, he prayed for strength. Verse 9, but we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. There there was a need even to exercise wisdom. God has asked us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he even stopped the work so that they could protect themselves. You look at verse 13, and it says this. Now, some of your translations say, 
I stationed men, but that's not part of the original. It, it literally says this, I stationed in the lowest parts of the space, all the weak areas behind the wall, I stationed the people by their families. Not only did he pray, but he also protected the weak areas through the wisdom that God gave him. And I think this is what he did. It says he stationed the families, you know. It's, I have a brood of five kids, and, and literally I think this is what Nehemiah did. He found all the families, even the kids, Caleb, Micah, Hannah, and he armed them to the teeth with swords and shields, maybe even Abigail and Nicole, and he placed them in all these weak places because when the enemy came, they would see those places and they wouldn't know and they would think, there's a whole army behind that wall. And so every place that was exposed in the wisdom that God had given him, Nehemiah placed the people of God even by their children, even by their families, to protect the work of God. But then he goes on to do this. He saw the people were still trembling in their boots. And so he not only prays, he not only protects, but he also preaches. And this is what he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now, you've got to stop there. Those words, sometimes we can brush over them, but in this situation, they're, they're so significant with truth. He says, remember the Lord who is great like your tower. We don't have a wall yet, but it doesn't matter. God's our wall. We don't have physical protection yet, but it doesn't matter. God is our protection. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Not only is he great, but he's also awesome. You don't need to be afraid of 10,000 men that will stand against you because the awesome creator of the universe, he stands with you. And we know this to be true, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? If he did not spare his own son, how shall he with him also not give you all things, even through the trials and the tribulations that you may face for his name? You know, I, I said that this generation that we live in is the generation that faces the most persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. Do you also know that this generation is the generation where the church is growing the fastest? Where the church of Jesus Christ in places like Boko Haram in Sudan and in North Korea where, where Christians are literally in slave gangs having their, their years chained together so that they can harvest the fields for, for wicked men. The church is stronger than ever and growing faster than ever. You know why? Because the Lord who is great and awesome, is with them. And he's with you. Don't be discouraged. Don't look to the wrong cistern for, for resources in times of trouble. Look to Christ, and he is able. Amen? So God is able to take us through the worst that the enemy can give. But sometimes, where we fail is when persecution stops. And you see that in verses 15 and following. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, what would you do if you went through a season of opposition and then God, by His grace, He put an end to it? Well, maybe have a party, right? Let, let's, let's celebrate. Let, let's stop being so intense for Jesus Christ for a minute and let's just, let's just focus on the things of this world. Why don't we? And, and that can be the time sometimes when the greatest failure creeps into the church when we're not persecuted. 
In fact, that's why when you study the church through the ages, the persecuted church is the church that is more holy than the church that is, is fat with the things of this world. And maybe the best thing that God can do for us, now don't pray for it, okay? It will come. <laughs> but maybe the best thing that God can do for us is help us to endure a little suffering so that we stop being attached to the things of this world and we're focused on eternity. That's what happened to these people. I would say the, the third gospel response is this. They began as they learned through the lessons of God's strength in persecution. They began to pursue eternity more than life itself. They lost an appetite for their nine-to-five jobs as being important, even though they were necessary, but they lost an appetite for even the comforts of this world. They lost an appetite for the attraction of this world, and they said, the only thing that matters right now is eternity. And what I do for Jesus, that's the only thing that matters. Just quickly, you look at the way in which they respond. It's amazing. You, you see them pursuing eternity in, in three ways. They, they became even more diligent than they were before the persecution. In verses 15 and 17, what happened was they returned to their work and half the servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears Verse 17, they held a load in one hand for, for doing the construction and they carried their weapon in another hand. This is where Spurgeon, by the way, verse 17, got the title for his, his pastoral letter, the sword and the trowel. And he said, this is the way in which Christians need to always live. They need to live with this sense of heightened diligence that I never, even while I'm working in my secular field, I never lose that one hand that is gripped on the things of Jesus Christ. And there was that sense of knowing the days are evil, the time is short, Christ is coming soon, we don't want to rest till he comes. That rest is the only rest we're looking forward to. We don't want retirement on this earth. And peace is a time on this earth to do more work for Jesus Christ, amen? Not only were they diligent, but they were also bold. It says in verses 18 and following, that each builder wore his, his sword at his side and a trumpeter was commissioned by Nehemiah in verse 18. And the idea was whenever the trumpet was blown, which was a call for war, they were all going to rally to that place, even though they were a small people. And they were going to rally to that place to fight for the name of their God. They said, we know we're weak, but we've seen that he's strong. And so we're going to fight even if we lose our lives, because his work and his name is more important than even our life. And if he wants to, he'll protect us. That's the way in which Christians live. Verses 21 to 23, they, they not only were diligent, they not only were bold, but they were also with this heightened sense of alertness. They didn't even sleep. They carried on their work from dawn until the stars appeared. And as I, as I read earlier, I just love this verse. I want to even stick it on my, my study desk. Nehemiah didn't even take off his clothes even when he went to the water to have a bath because he wanted to be ready at any time to fight for the cause of the Lord. Where did they learn this from? You know, the, the reason why Christians that go through persecution are diligent because they see the diligence and the faithfulness of their God on their behalf. And it causes them to become like Him. 
That's what Psalm 121 verse 4 says, right? Where does my help come from in times of trouble? It comes from the Lord. And what kind of Lord is He? He's the one who keeps or who guards His people through trials and He neither sleeps nor slumbers. Now that's not a statement of saying that God doesn't sleep because that's obvious. He doesn't have needs. He doesn't need. He doesn't get tired. But it's a statement more of his unceasing diligence and faithfulness for his people. And people that have gone through persecution, they know that. And they say, we can't help but loving Christ like he has loved us. He loved us through the cross. He's loved us through trials. He's loved us through persecution. It is a small thing for us to lay down our lives for him without sleeping or slumbering because of who he is for us. He's our helper. And we will live for him. You know, the best way to, to energize a, a church to greater commitment for the Lord Jesus Christ is to see his faithfulness in trials. I can say this about my church, and I know this, that the people that serve the most are the people that have suffered the most. The people that are, are most committed to the Lord Jesus Christ are the people that have gone through great tra tragedies for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that has done, instead of making them depressed and discouraged, is it's made them more encouraged. That's the gospel. To serve Jesus and to say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And with that, they live and overcome evil. For the name of Jesus Christ. God can do the same thing through you. Not because you are strong, but because He is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the model, the encouragement, and the power that You demonstrate through the life of Nehemiah. A man who was weak like we are. A man who faced much opposition like we do, Lord. And, and this is the amazing fellowship that we have with Him. He was a man that knew the same strong God in his life, the same rock, the same redeemer that was able to be with him through the valley of the shadow of death is with us. Oh Lord, remind us of these things and help us to walk with greater commitment to you for your kingdom till Jesus comes. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Sammy, for that uh, great message of encouragement to us. And uh, such a joy to see God growing you and maturing you as a man, and uh, just a, such a blessing to just, uh, from the first day I met you to now, just to see how the Lord has grown you as a man of God and uh, a preacher of His Word. And so we're going to uh, dismiss here in just a moment, and uh, Sammy will be down front here with his, uh, three of his children. And uh, if you've never met Sammy, uh, please come and introduce yourself. I know he'd love to meet you. Um, this afternoon, we've got uh, that reception as well from 3 to 5. Just stop by the Bundys. Thank you, Bundys, for opening your home for us this afternoon to, to spend some time with the Williams. But uh, plan to stop by this afternoon for a few minutes. And uh, if you uh, are visiting with us again this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. We want to encourage you to take that little card you filled out at the beginning of the service and drop it by our Welcome Center on the way out today. And we've got some gifts we like to give all of our first-time guests, so we'd love to meet you personally out there as well. So, let me just pray and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our day. Thank you, Father, for uh, just the sweet time of fellowship. We've enjoyed the time in your word and just to be encouraged by our brother Sammy and uh, just uh, what you're doing through him uh, in India. 
uh, in his church and in the seminary there. And we just ask your special blessing upon him and his family. I pray that we'd be a blessing to them uh, while they're with us here and uh, that uh, we know they'll be a blessing to us. And so, Lord, be, be glorified. Help us to uh, not be just merely hearers of your word today, but doers who can now go and apply uh, this great message about how to overcome evil with good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.